0: You are, um, and after you're seated, please turn in your Bible to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1, and today we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. So Titus is towards the end of your Bible. It's a really short letter. It's three chapters long. It's two pages in my Bible, so if you flip too fast, you might miss it, but um, towards the end of your Bible, Titus. And we're going to spend this summer working through, working through this this letter, this short letter. The, the rest of the summer we're going to be doing this. Uh, before I, I start, I just wanted to make just a couple comments, and please forgive me if it's, it's slightly repetitive to what Pastor Doug just said. But I wanted to uh, just just uh, express my Thanksgiving this morning as well for some of the things that he mentioned. Um, last night, again, we had our Rappahannock area celebra- celebration. And, um, you know, I, I just want to just give thanks to you and praise to God that God used this congregation and many of its members um, in order to make that happen. Uh, we env- envisioned a area-wide revival. Uh, we prayed about it. We made phone calls. We got churches together to kind of get that started off. And... As a result, yesterday, we had over 5,200 people attend two events yesterday. Hundreds of people responded to the gospel between the two events. I mean, 5,200 people between both events. And, and those aren't the Bill Graham numbers. That's the Expo Center's numbers that they're giving us for the number of people who attended uh, that event. That's pretty large. And we have a lot to give thanks for. Uh, for, for that and um, you know thank you for the support in making the gospel known thank you for those who attended thank you for those who led the way through this I think we have a lot to rejoice in and a lot to hope for as we look towards the gospel taking root and changing lives helping marriages restoring families inside of this community and that's what we pray for the work of the gospel in that and last night was a, it was a good event with that. Um, my heart also overflows with Thanksgiving for our baseball ministry leaders, uh, Christopher Dale and Connie both, because we finished another season yesterday. I don't even know who won. Who won the majors? Maroon won the majors, and who won the minors? Uh, Maroon. There's a bit of a dynasty that's going on here, which I, I've heard has to be broke up. But, but, you know, we have, I don't know if you know this, but we have probably 600 people who come here every Saturday. Uh, between the number of events and over 175 players who are part of that, children who are ministered to the gospel. And so I know we have coaches and, and people have umpires. We have people who do all kinds of things in this congregation. So I, I, I give praise for that and give praise for you with that. Um, and the third thing I want to mention, just my heart overflowing, was this last week was the General Assembly of our, of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. That's our annual business meeting. But business for a church is about missions and doctrine, right? And so I, I'm thankful for the work that they did. I'm thankful for the things that were accomplished. I'm thankful for the vision and mission which the Presbyterian Church in America has moving forward. And just my heart overflows with thanksgiving, especially to Pastor Sam Bob Rumbaugh, Doug Bergen, um, their families as well as they went. Uh, Bob and Doug, you know, they represent us there at their own expense. Um, and so just with great appreciation uh, for them to make that investment. Doug Bergen got so invested that he even got COVID out of it. <laughs> so he is at home recovering. So please pray for him. And, you know, finally, as Pastor Doug mentioned, just praise to God for overturning of Roe versus Wade and, you know, Doug, the way you articulated it just showed the momentous uh, decision for life that it is. And whatever the reason that the justices may uh, select in that, you know, we recognize what the scripture teaches that every life from cradle, from from womb to tomb is sacred in the eyes of God. And, And this is a step in the right direction for that. But, you know, also thinking about it for your prayers, even you know your work with government, your legislative work, and in your work with um, just praying for uh, our pregnancy center that we have here, the investment that the church has inside the pregnancy center for the care of husbands and wives, uh, or husbands, wives, men and women, um, women with unexpected pregnancies, with uh, children who were born. Um, in these unexpected pregnancies and your care for them, uh, whether it's serving on our board or volunteering there or the giving of the church, just praise God for that. And praise God for your prayers. You know, the scripture says the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And, and to see our prayers to be um, answered over this week is, is a, great, a great joy. And, you know, I, I don't think that work ends. If anybody who's connected with the pregnancy center, in fact, you know, the work actually gets harder at this point. You know, I, I heard over this last week that there was 400,000 children in foster care around our nation. There's adoptions, um, and there this, somebody told me this morning how hard it is to get an adoption. But, you know, these are um, things that our nation will face in the future. Um, sometimes doing the right thing makes a harder thing, but that's where the church stands in and steps up for what's good and what's right and what needs to be done. And so, you know, as we pray and give thanks, as we pray for continued work inside of our own states— our commonwealth, I should properly say, Um, and as we pray for women, children, men, babies who are affected by this, we just pray that, you know, that the works of the church and the works of Christ would continue to be evident inside of of our world. Now, all this is somewhat connected with my sermon today, um, but I will get to that in a little bit, but my my heart overflows with thanksgiving um, to the Lord and also to you Um, and to this church for its ministry in all of those things because I see your hands in all of those. And I I praise God for that. So um, that leads us to our passage. And I want to read this uh, together with you now. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Again, we'll be in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. Paul my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and, G- and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of God. The f- grass withers, the flower fades, but his word stands forever. Please be seated. Well, uh, we're going to start the book of Titus. So we're going to be looking at this book through the end of the summer. And, you know, why did I choose this? Um, One of the things I love about Titus is that it shows the power of God using ordinary people for extraordinary purposes. It shows how God uses the ordinary gospel uh, to make even an extraordinary people to do those things. Uh, This little book is about the power of the gospel and the transformation of a people. It's about how the church can bless the community in good, good works. Now, now, why does this matter? Why does it matter? to Talk about it? it. Matters because we always have to get back to God's design and God's purposes for the church. We always want to come back to that. Um, just this uh, recently, recent essay in First Things. Russ Doubt that, who's a, a uh, columnist for the New York Times. He's a serious Catholic. He be- begins with this question. He says, "How should contemporary Christians react to the decline of their churches?" The secularization of the culture, the final loss of Christendom, is what he asks. So here's that question. How should we react to the decline of their churches? So in his article, um, Douthat addresses politics and the state and loss of Christian thinking. Um, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to talk about that, but we're going to think about the church. You know, what does the church do about this? How do we think in light of the church, in light of the changes that we see around us. It's important for us to think about that. Statistics um, show the decline of the church in the West and in the United States. And if you know, in 1945, that there were 76% of Americans were members of the church, a synagogue or a mosque, 76%. In 1980, it was 70%. In 2000, it was about 68%. In 2010, it was about 60%. And in 2020, it was 47%. You know, you see the decline of, of membership inside of churches, mosques, and synagogues. Primarily, though, we know that that is, is, is churches, right? And we know that's where eternal life is found, and it shows the, this desperate need of our nation and the, peop- and the people around us. We can consider also, at the same time, the number of social issues that we face as a nation, whether it's suicide, drugs and alcohol, absent dads, abortion, uninvolved dads, violence in the streets underlying anger, overwhelmed foster systems, overwhelmed prisons, young people struggling to launch in adulthood, and even population declines. You know, there are a number of social issues which our nation um, deals, and morally, moral issues, not just social issues, moral issues that, that, that we face. And on top of that, we see the general purposelessness among people, growing loneliness among people. All, I think all these are, are connected together. As, as a nation distances itself from God. Now, here's the thing. is We know that the, that the church of Jesus Christ has a message that would heal the world. The world would receive it, people would receive it, and as we are faithful to make that message known, it is a message that brings healing to the world. It brings healing to people's lives. The work of the church matters in the health of a family, of an individual, and of, and of a nation there's so many problems around us. And that's exactly the kind of world in which the first churches were started. That really brings us to our passage. One of the first churches that was started, we read about it here in Titus. Now, we call it the book of Titus, um, but it's really a letter. So actually, we should call it the epistle to Titus. But if I call it a book or an epistle, I'm talking about the same thing. But it was written to a young pastor, and this pastor was named Titus and um, with his work that he was doing in starting new churches. And it was helping him to see how to build a healthy church in, in an unhealthy culture. So I'll see how to see how to start that. Now, the, the author identifies himself right at the beginning as the Apostle Paul. It's because the Apostle Paul, in his work of starting new churches, uh, right after the death and resurrection of Christ, um, he brought... Paul and Titus into a missionary expedition to the island of Crete, the island of Crete. And while they were there, they were starting new churches. And Paul, there were Titus, Paul stuck around for a little bit, but uh, he was the Apostle Paul. So he had other things he had to attend to, other things he had to go take care of. And so he moved on to his next mission, but he leaves Titus there to finish the things that still need to be done. In fact, that's a phrase he uses if you look down at verse 5. Finish the things that are left undone. That's what Titus's job is there. Keep on the work that's already been started. Now, Crete, Crete is a large island. It's in the Mediterranean Sea, just south of, of Greece. And at this time, it especially had a reputation for immorality, even among its own residents. You could look, if you jump down to verse 12, you'll see that, that they even, they, they were so immoral that they all told each other how immoral they were. It says in verse 12 that they were liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And that's not an outsider's perspective, that's an insider perspective about what kind of land he's starting this church in. You know, it's like island life, you know, really shaped the way that, that they behaved. All right, so that's what Titus is doing. He's started these new churches. And if you've ever been part of a small church or, or a church plant, you can know how delicate it is to start a new church. It doesn't take much to see something like that crumble. And one big question is that they're faced with is whether the influence of the world around them is going to infect the church and spoil it or whether is the church, as a group of transformed people, are going to uh, work to improve the community around them. The big question is whether the mission of the church is going to guide its steps or the world derail the church from her, from her mission. Now, if we look to our own time, I think if we look at the challenges that we're faced with and the way the church has responded many times over the last 125 years, uh, many answers have not been helpful. Instead of getting back to God's word, instead of getting back uh, to the mission that Jesus Christ gives to make disciples of all nations, instead of seeing what it is that makes Jesus Christ and the word of God distinct, too many churches and denominations have become just like the world. That only fuels that decline. They've lost their mission. They forgot about the gospel. They moved away from Jesus Christ, his soul-saving mission, and they let the world in the churches whether it's through false doctrine, whether it's through uh, poor behavior. And one thing I think you see with churches, why go to the church if the message isn't different than what the world is offering us everywhere else? So what Paul does is to show there's a distinct message, a distinct doctrine, which distinguishes the church from the world, the people of God from the world. And in doing this, what he does is he outlines some practical steps for Titus to implement for a healthy growth in the church. It's a blueprint, it's a blueprint for a healthy church in an unhealthy community. And so as we see the world choose godlessness, as we see it moving towards unrighteousness, the church of Jesus Christ has the power to preserve what is beautiful, what is righteous, what is good, and what is true. I mean, it's your job. That's our job. That's, that's our job together. That's what we do as part of, of, of the church. And as a church, we have a, a charge, and the charge is to be healthy. For the glory of Jesus Christ, we need to be healthy. For the sake of the souls of others, we need to be healthy. For the strengthening of our homes, the raising up of leaders, the doing good of our world, we need to be healthy. So this is an important book. It's, it's, it's small. It's easy to read through. There's a lot here that you can hold on to and hang on to. My challenge to you as you look ahead the next seven days is read this book once a day for the next seven days. I mean, think how much more you'd know if you look towards next Sunday and think, "Hey, I see how this all fits together, and you can do it easily in one sitting. My guess is five minutes or less. Read the book every day for a week. Just, just get to know, get familiar with it with an acquaintance, you're, you're, you're working to get to know a little bit better, right? Because the question we want to look at is, are we healthy enough for this mission? That's the, the question that Paul was giving Titus, to be healthy for this mission. As we go through this book for us, you know, we could look at it as diagnostic for us. could Be diagnostic for our individual lives, for our families, and then also for us as a church. It's good, good and important things to look through and to consider. Well, what does health look like? What does health look like? In a word, health looks like good works. The reason I say that um, is that if you look at one of the key phrases inside of this book, it is the phrase good works. It shows up six times, six strategic times inside of this book. And so my challenge to you as you read it over the seven times is underline, find those six times that it talks about good works. Because when you have something short and you keep repeating it, it's probably something that's pretty important he's focused on that he's focused on that it's also why as I was just thinking about this was so thankful for and the connection that I have with you with what God is doing here how thankful I am because we want to see that sort of fruit caring for children building you know if we can build leagues which minister to children and teach baseball at the same time. If we can, you know, move for what's good in worldwide missions and for our denomination. If we can work towards life from the sanctity of life from the caring for people in difficult, hard situations. As we look to making the gospel known, I mean, these are good works which you've been involved with and I'm just so thankful for as I am reflecting on it. Good works. It's a central part for it. But it also shows us as we're going to look through this, where the ability to do good works comes from. It comes from knowing the power of God, knowing his, 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 his um, as we take what he's revealed to us, take them as truth, receive them as his truth, and then live them out in our lives. We won't know God's power if we're not healthy. And the lack of health will rob away the ability of the church to do good works, to make a difference, and to make Christ known. Think about it for your own body. If your body is unhealthy, whether it's because of your own decisions or habits or some sickness that you catch, you know that when there is parts of lack of health that we lack strength to do what we need to do. We might be extra tired because we're, um, maybe it's because we're overweight. Maybe because we eat too much sugar or drink too much alcohol. Our backs may hurt because we sit at a desk all day. We can have debilitating headaches. We may avoid seeing the doctor. Even when we're dealing with body pains or tooth pains or, or, you know, we avoid seeing a doctor even when we're tired. And at times we can get help with. And if these things are true, you know, about our health, what do we begin to do? We look at our diet. We go see a doctor. We get more exercise. Maybe we have surgery. Maybe we sleep more. Maybe we stop drinking alcohol. I mean, there's little things that we can do to um, give us more, better health and help us to do more. Well, those things are true for the church. Also, just like our body needs certain patterns of health to keep our strength, so the church needs a few things to stay healthy. That's what we're going to be looking at as we look at this epistle to Titus. It's a blueprint for church health. So one more thing I want to mention in my introduction is, is my title. You may have seen my title. You do have an outline in your bulletin. You're always welcome to follow along. You know, it's a little of my play on words, right? Because it's, my title was Church Matters. The church matters. I've already talked about that. Talked about the things that our, that our world and culture faces. The church matters in the plans of God. The church matters in the community. Uh, the church matters to every believer. And the church is for our good. And because of that, we need to think about how we're acting and living as a church. Because the church matters, we need to think about church matters and pay attention to them. All right, so as we're going to look at over the course of our study, we're going to look at having a healthy church. We want a healthy church. We need to work out God's design. It's not our design. It's God's design. It's his idea. It's not our call um, to work out our own innovative designs, but to innovatively work out his designs in the world. So let's look at these things, our three points. Uh, The first thing we see for, for our health, that God has sent messengers. He sent messengers so that we could be healthy. We see this in verse 1. Again, to read it, Paul, says Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, unlike the letters that we usually write one another, the authors of these letters, Paul writes his, puts his signature up at the top, right? He's saying, I'm the one, Paul says, I'm the one who writes the letter. But he does more than that. He also puts his credentials right under that. Who is he and why does he write? We see two primary credentials which are written under his name. And the first thing he says about himself is that he is a servant of God. He's a servant of God. In doing so, he puts himself in the right line under God. He knows who he's serving. He knows who he's there for. Not for himself, not even foremost for the people he's speaking to. First and foremost, he is one who is duty-bound under God to do what God has called him to do. And so, nothing less than that. God is in charge. Paul's a servant. In fact, if you go back to Acts nine fifteen, we see the apostle Paul when he's converted to Christ. We see that God says that Paul is going to be His chosen instrument. And so, we see Paul adopting that, receiving that. This is his statement of allegiance to God. He's there for God's message, not his own agenda. And in this way, he's in the line of the Old Testament prophets, those who knew God's sovereignty over them and knew his call to speak that into the world. Right? If any of us are going to be useful in this world, faithful to our calling, faithful in the times of difficulty, what will we also see ourselves as? As servants of God. We're here to serve another, not ourselves. All right, secondly, he says he's a servant of God. Secondly, he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. So what is an apostle? An apostle is a sent messenger. I mean, it isn't just a generic form of somebody who's sent out. Is that an apostle, as we understand that used in the New Testament, is a specific designation given to somebody who saw Jesus Christ face-to-face after his resurrection. Who's taught personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the apostle Paul fits this category. He saw Jesus after his resurrection... After his resurrection, he spent time being taught by Christ. He knew the apostles, and we can see various places where the apostles, the other apostles, recognized him. Although he wasn't part of the original 12, they recognized him as being taught by Jesus Christ personally after his resurrection. You know, but it's a technical term. We can look at that requirement in Acts 1, 21, and 22, um, that they have to see Jesus Christ face to face. That's why there are, can't be um, any more apostles We don't see Jesus Christ, um, you know, he's ascended into heaven. He's the right hand of God, um, and he has set up his apostles to do that work. But the apostles have left their mark. The Bible says that the apostles are the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles, building off of what he has done, laid that foundation. They give us the core convictions of our faith. And so while there are no more living apostles, there's no apostolic succession we see that the church is still apostolic. It's apostolic. It's, it's the doctrine of which has been given by the disciples, is taught and handed down from generation to generation, believed on and received by the church, and, and, and confessed by the church. That church is apostolic. Jesus sent out his apostles. He sent out his messengers uh, for the, the good of his people, that they would know his plans, that they would know his purposes, that they'd be taught and they would be able to learn. You know, the, the, the scriptures are, are the words the apostles given to us. That's why it's so important to read them. You know, where does our faith come from? It comes from those who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw him after his resurrection. And so when we read the Bible, you know, we are reading from the apostles. God's original plans, God's original ideas for the Christian life, for the way we live, and for the church. And so here we have the Apostle Paul, the servant, the, um, the servant and apostle. He's helping uh, start these churches in Crete. Um, and as I mentioned, he had to move on to take other things. But even as he moved away from Crete, it's, it's not that the church there was left without a messenger. Remember, God for our health sends messengers. God loves the church so much that he left Titus there. You can even see how Paul talks affectionately about him in verse 4. He says, Titus is his true son in the faith. We think Paul brought Titus to faith in Christ and trained him in the scriptures. And we see where that connection they have comes from. It comes through faith, right? More than ethnicity, more than their biology, more than their family tree. He said, this is my true son. Showing something about their connection together. Showing something about our connection in Christ. It doesn't come from nation. doesn't come from genetics. Not first and foremost, but truly and eternally We have a family connection with others who profess faith in Jesus Christ. You have more in connection with a believer in Myanmar, which you might not be able to find on a map, than you do with the unbelieving American you live next door to. Because you're gonna be with that person into eternity, in that great heavenly country forever and ever. We're connected to one another through faith in Christ. All right, so why do we need to follow God's design for building this church? We wanna be healthy. We need to know about him. He sent his messengers. Secondly, why do we need to follow God's design? It's because to be healthy, we need a godly lifestyle. We see this also in verse 1. Verse 1, after he uh, says he's a servant apostle of Jesus Christ, the apostle goes on to say, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So after telling us his credentials, he goes on to tell us the purpose of his work. The purpose of the letter, he writes for the sake of of God's elect. We're reminded here of the the electing um, grace of God. That God has chosen in his kindness and his love to save a people of his very own. He's done all that's required to save them. Not only has he chosen to save them, but he sent Jesus Christ to die for them. And he sent his Holy Spirit to give them a new heart. So they'll hear and respond to the gospel. It's a work of the whole Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all active in salvation, but it all starts with choosing. God's elect. God's choosing to save a people of his own. And Paul sees what God has done, and in response to that, he says, I'm the servant of God. I want to serve you, God, in your purposes. And so what is he going to do? He works and writes for their faith, and he works it right for their knowledge of the truth. I mean, God has done so much for his people that the Apostle Paul wants them to know what God has done and to help them continue in that. We want you to know what God has done and to help you walk in that. I mean, have you ever babysat for anyone? Have you ever babysat for a helicopter parent? I was talking with a babysitter once. I can't remember who this was. But she said to me, well, at least I didn't kill their kids. Yeah, that, well, that's kind of a a, a a low marker there. But, you know, if you're babysitting, taking care of somebody, you know the parents love those kids, and we better take good care of them, right? Because they love that little one so much, we better take care of them also. This way, Paul's saying is, I know how much God loves his elect people, and so I have an important message for you. If God loves you, um, I have a message that you can continue to walk in them. And Paul doesn't want to make these mistakes and failing to care for for the people that God has chosen. Does a parent want to care for their kids? I mean, do you know what parents love to talk about? Their kids. Do you know what grandparents love to talk about? Their grandkids, right? I mean, we we love to talk about those things. In fact, I've realized this. I said, you know, sometimes maybe I feel socially awkward. I don't know. Does anybody else ever feel socially awkward? And I've realized there's like this secret, there's a secret tip I've learned if you feel awkward in an awkward situation, just ask about their kids or grandkids because, because it kind of gets you out of all these kind of things. People love to talk about them. They'll show you a picture of them. Before long, you'll be comparing pictures of kids to one another and you'll realize you're talking more than you probably should. That happened to me on Friday. I asked about their kids, I started talking about mine, but um, I should be listening. I should be listening. What well, you want to know another way to bless a parent? Uh, teach them, teach a child. Those same values that the parent is trying to pass on. Isn't that true? You work to inculcate in them the same things the parent is trying to pass on. That's why we, we love our teachers. Parents will love you for that. They know they need help in teaching the kids. Now, what is Paul doing here? He's teaching the people that God loves, he's speaking into the lives of the people that God loves as his own children. Paul knows who his message is for. For those that God has chosen to shower his love on. Now what is he doing? He's grounding them in the truth. We see that in verse 1. Scripture tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. He wants them to know what God has said. Because once that knowledge is established, faith can grow. We build faith upon knowledge doesn't come from wishful thinking. It's not a step in the dark. It is built upon what God has revealed to us. And we receive what is revealed to us and we walk in that by faith. Because once we know who he is, we're in a spot to trust him more deeply. We're in a spot to lean into him. And even in risky times, even in risky times, we'll trust him. Now, once people have this knowledge of the faith, where does it lead? Verse 1 goes on. The next step is Godliness. Godliness. Where does godliness come from? Where do good works come from? It comes from knowing the God who rules the world, the God who calls us to certain behaviors in the life, from knowing and trusting a God who loves us and has redeemed us by his grace. You know, those things help us become more godly people. So a healthy church loves godliness. A healthy church is grounded in a right understanding of God's truth. That's that's the aim, godliness, it's not entertainment. It's not it's a selfish community, but it's healthy, um, but it's loving God, sending our life on him, serving him by loving him and our neighbor. And the gospel truth is the foundation of that. So we may be glad to know of God's love for us. We may rejoice in knowing what he's done to save us. We may know, have security in knowing that he's chosen us, predestined us to be one of his people. We might find security that it's, it's not based on anything that we do, but what he does. But is godliness important to us? Knowing those things, does godliness then become important to us? It should. Are we working to grow in our knowledge? Are we trusting in God and growing by faith? Those things should matter. Knowledge is not the end. Godliness is the end. Christ-like character, submission to Christ's lordship, and greater love for each other. So why do we need to follow God's design for the church? We see that to be healthy, we need a godly lifestyle. But there's another reason, listen to verses 2 and 3, and a healthy church needs hope. Healthy people need hope. Look at verse 2. It says, In hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching of which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Why be godly? Why follow this design of God? And what Paul's saying here is, well, we godly because that's consistent with our hopes. That's consistent with eternal life. I mean, it's hope, which directs our behavior. I mean, if you hope to be rich, it's going to affect the decisions you're going to make about risk, and it's going to affect the way you decision you make about money and, and even time. If you hope to be married, that, that's going to affect your decisions. If you hope to get a degree, you're going to make time for it. And if you hope to get to heaven, I man, it's going to affect your life right now. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me ask you if heaven matters to you at all. Do you want to be part of a glorious, never-ending kingdom with no sin, no evil, no suffering? I mean, if that's something that you want, then you need Jesus. He's the only one who can get you there. It's because you're a sinner. You need to be forgiven. And God will forgive you. He's provided a way through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Confess Christ. But if you don't want heaven that I don't think Jesus will ever mean anything to you. I mean, heaven is uh, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hell is for those who don't. I mean, there really is no in-between. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness what's good, or do you not? There's this notion that's out in the world that that boring people go to heaven and, and the really cool people go to hell, right? Billy Joel said, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, right? Well, you know, it's just false because it doesn't work that way. You know, hell is eternal. It's eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Pastor Doug preached on this just a few weeks ago and on the horrors of hell. It's good to listen to and be reminded of in that. But if your hope is eternal life, that's going to steer you. It's going to steer your behavior, it's going to steer where you go. What do we want? We want godliness. Why do we want it? Because we want heaven. We want heaven. That hope of eternal life drives us to, to godly living. If we, if we want heaven, won't we begin making out our lives right now to be as heavenly as possible? Our hope of eternal life sets the pattern even for our own lives now. Now, the Bible talks about hope, and it uses that word hope that you see here. Um, it's talking more than wishful thinking. Sometimes we have wishful thinking ideas. I hope that he remembers our anniversary. You know, I'm just wishing that he would. But hope is, in the Bible, it's talking about confident expectations. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation. That's because it's based on something. It's a confident expectation that's going to come to pass because of the promise of God. And a God who can never lie. Sometimes people ask if there's anything that God can't do, right? Is there anything that God can't do? That's well, kind of an interesting question to ask as you read this passage, isn't it? Because it tells us one thing God can't do. He can't what? He can't lie, right? Right? I, I love those old things. I kind of I, I just treasure where I can find those and underline them or try to remember. Okay. Where does it say God can't lie? This is this is a good one. If you don't know, you can always Google it, I guess. But, the reason he cannot lie is not because he lacks the power to do something. The reason he cannot lie is because it is so contrary to his nature. It's contrary to his character. Literally impossible for him to do it. It's just incomprehensible to think that God would lie. You've, you've never met in your life anybody incapable of, uh, incapable of lying. I mean, you may have met outright liars, I know I have, and one of them has a little bit of my money because of his lies. We are surrounded by liars. And in fact, the worst liar in your life is probably yourself, right internally. We have people who make promises that they cannot fulfill, even if they wanted to. Almost every politician reminds us of that fact. They promise an agenda, but they can't do it. As a parent, I wonder how many promises I have made that I didn't fulfill. I suspect all here at lunch. One of them, and I hope none, I hope not many. But God, God cannot lie. Literally impossible. And what he says, what he says he will do, he can do. What he says he will do, he wants to do. And if God has promised something, he will not change his mind. God doesn't change, God cannot lie. And that's why we know we can trust in his promises. And so where is the promise given? In this enormous promise of heaven. How do we hear those promises? Verse 3 says we hear these promises through preaching. Paul was a preacher among being an apostle. It's how we learn the good news of the gospel. Preaching is one of these ordinary means of grace that God uses to change us, to transform us. He uses preaching to overwhelm us with his truth. So we can turn from lies, we can turn from sin, and we can turn to the hope that we have in the gospel, turning to him by faith. What do we want? We want godliness. Why do we want it? Because we want to get to heaven. We want to go to heaven. We want heaven. And how do we get it? It starts with the knowledge of the truth that comes in the word of God and hearing the word of God. What we're going to see as we work through this book is this importance of of preaching. And as we're overcome with the promises of God, it overwhelms and floods us with the love of God, and that inspires change in us. We may wonder what's happening to us as we come, you know, we we may wonder what's happening to us as we hear preaching. Is it really making a difference? Um, Sometimes we can wonder if it makes a difference to listen. The Bible says that it does. When you hear by faith, it shapes you. It doesn't work like a magic spell. Sometimes you might even think when you get home, what did I learn today? What did he talk about? But there is this way that as you listen by faith, asking God to shape you by it, it will connect you with the purpose of God. It will lead you to joy. It will lead you to, to, to love. People say that you become like the people you spend time with. You become like the people you spend time with. You might find a friend, and you've, uh, suddenly you've met them, you've spent a couple months with them, all of a sudden you realize, you know what, I kind of say the same things that he says now, or she says, I never heard me say that before, but all of a sudden it's coming out of your mouth. Somebody else may point that out to you. Well, if you know God, he's going to shape you. But it won't work if you don't listen. If you're on your phone, you're checking the internet, won't work if you're playing Wordle. You think you can multitask, but it doesn't work like that. I mean, experts have shown that multitasking leads to do a few things badly. Nothing well. In fact, I know when I multitask on my phone when I'm supposed to be in a conversation with my wife. She knows I'm not listening. I know I'm not listening, but I still pretend like I am right? We kind of like to pretend like that. I justify it. I say how important it was. But if you're multitasking on your phone, I guarantee you're not really listening. Not in the way the person wants to talk to you. Wants to communicate with you. And that includes the Lord as we come to his word. We listen by faith. We listen to God's word. We shape our life around that word, knowing that as we know him, obey him, walk in him, we know he's pleased and we have his blessing. So, you know, how, how is it we have a healthy church, we're going to be looking at this as we look at Titus. How do we lead a healthy life? At the root, what we need is we need Jesus Christ. He came for our spiritual health. The church matters because Jesus matters. He is God's ultimate messenger. He's the, corner, the, the cornerstone of the church. He shows us how to be healthy spiritually. He, he, he died for our sins to forgive us. He rose up from the dead. And he's the only way we're going to turn away from sin and live for God. And he brings to us the unchangeable promises of God. He sealed them, these promises, with his own death. As we know, God can't lie about these promises to his his people. He sealed it with the blood of his own son. And he proved it's true by his resurrection. And he continues to praise for his church. So the church matters because Jesus matters. We have a message for life, to the world, and that's why we need to be attentive to what we do. So the people of God can know the power of his love in their lives. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, you have shown us the church matters. By, and, and you've shown it by sending your own son to redeem your own people and gather them together as his body. Wow. He died to show the church matters to you. He rose from the dead to show you have your own people. God, if your work matters so much to you, help us to love the work you are doing. Raise up healthy churches and proclaim